Amen. Thank you. God loves us. Do you sense God's love here this morning? As they were singing that, um, of course, there's a lot of ways that we sense God's love. But um, what came to my mind just in light of this weekend was God loves us. Look at look at this beautiful place and the grounds and the property that God has given us. And Saturday we had a church work day and a lot of you came out and and uh, you showed your love to God by sweating for this kingdom outpost coming out here to maintain it and help beautify it. But just as a, a practical way, God loves us. Just look out the window or just look at the neighbor that you have sitting next to you, a person to help you in your journey with Christ, your pilgrimage. God loves us in so many ways. He loves us through the music and the people that He's provided for us to lead us in that. Uh, He loves us through His Son, Jesus Christ. He loves us through the Holy Spirit. He loves us through the gift of His Word. But God loves us dearly. And I trust that we will be loved well as we hear from the Lord in our psalm this morning. But I did want to thank you those of you that came out to a work day, the place looks a little better. Looks more beautiful than it did last week. Thank you for your hard work. A lot of people came out. This place was crawling like ants. People over here, over there, every direction you went, somebody was doing something. They had a rake or a chainsaw or a trailer or a limb or something in their hand. And um, you did a great job. Thank you for helping us keep this kingdom outpost for the glory of God. Also, uh, November 24th, I will keep it before you until it arrives, is our traditional Thanksgiving share service. So I would ask that you be um, seeking the Lord, because this is a time when we come together corporately and perfect, intentionally give thanks to God for something that He has done over the year. So be thinking about, Lord, is there something that you've done in my life? I mean, we can thank Him for a lot of things, but that you would want me to share for the purpose of edifying the saints. Um, It's important that we hear what God is doing in our lives. God's a living God. He's always at work. And so I'd appreciate your prayers about that and how you could participate. um, Singing a song, writing a poem, reading a poem, giving a few sentence testimony. Uh, some Some of you may need five or ten minutes. But let me know how the Spirit is moving so that we can be edified. It's really... Uh, cannot be overstated how important it is for us to hear what God is doing, even in each other's lives. What is God doing? I know He's doing something, because God is, He's not an idle God. He has this plan. And I say that also kind of as segue into our message this morning in Psalm 11. Because what we hear in today's world, today's culture, the messages, the testimonies, they're not from God's perspective. You know, you just all you have to do is open the paper and read the news or watch the news on TV. And we are bombarded by lots of articles, lots of reporting, lots of information. But how much of that is actually from God's perspective? So when you share on 24th, you are sharing something from God's perspective. Because He saved your soul, He is growing you and sanctifying you. We don't hear that very often in our culture. 
we hear a different perspective. Uh, not a perspective that keeps God's redemptive plan in mind. And quite frankly, sometimes it gets exhausting. I mean, how many times do you go from one negative headline to the next negative headline to the next negative headline? Now, it's a great day to be alive in the sense that we can hear about what's going on in the world, all the way around the world, almost at any given time. Now, that's incredible. But the bad thing about it is we can hear stuff that we don't need to be hearing that's going on. Anyway, the news, it can, be, it can be threatening, it can be depressing. We hear stuff we have no business hearing. We, they, they write about stuff they have no business writing about. And if that's not tiresome enough now, the news is reporting on what? Well, the news. Because the news makes headlines these days. Is it reliable? Is it fake? And so forth. So it's just like this cycle that goes around and around and around. And sometimes it confuses us the message of the world, sometimes it threatens us. Just to give you an example, I read a uh, personal example. I read an article uh, from Newt Gingrich a few weeks ago. And um, it, he just talked about being a little concerned over the fact that the uh, super, some superpowers are getting together. And, in other words, uh, the leader of China and the leader of Russia are getting together a lot more frequently than the, the President of the United States is getting together with either one. So those two are getting together more frequently. And he's saying, uh, we have a superpower and a superpower. They may be coming allies. They've never gotten along in the past, but now they seem to be getting along. We need to be concerned about that. And I'm reading it and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is not good. Two superpowers, you know, because I've always had taken such great stability and strength um, and, and comfort from our superpower and our military powers. But do you think about that? That wouldn't be a good outcome. So anyway, I had a little mini panic episode as I'm reading this article. I'm over it now. It didn't, it didn't last long. Not that we don't need to be concerned. I'm over it for good reason. But these, this is what happens sometimes as we hear different things, read whatever on Facebook, read the headlines, turn the TV on. You know, we, we, we're getting a perspective of the world. We're being fed this. And what we need is God's perspective. But when it comes in at this rate, it can affect us. And it will affect us if we are not vigilant. Well, this actually is the life and the world that we live in today. And it is very much what our psalm is about this morning. And it's Psalm 11. It's a uh, seven-verse psalm. And it's not a psalm that you hear quoted. Like, I don't know that I've ever, ever heard Psalm 11 quoted. I, maybe I have. It didn't register, but you hear Psalm 19, Psalm 119, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 33, Psalm 51 about repentance. But Psalm 11, who knows anything about Psalm 11? And it's because it's just kind of the same old themes that we find other, other places in Scripture. So it's not really new information. But it's really packed information. It's very edifying. I believe what we read this morning as we unpack it will edify the souls of the saints in this place this morning for spiritual 
growth. It's a psalm about experiencing God. A lot of psalms teach us how to experience God. This psalm teaches us how to experience God in times of trouble. How to experience God in times of maybe even despair. When you're, you read just one headline too many and it just took your soul in a spiral down. It's a psalm about when people come to the conclusion, you know what, the world's just falling apart and I've had enough. Every direction I look, all I see is negativism. All I see is degradation, and I can't take it anymore. And that's what this psalm is about. You also have another perspective of a person that looks at the same world, but has a different conclusion. So let's read Psalm 11. It's a psalm of David. The Lord is in his holy temple. That's the name of the psalm. To the choir master of David. Verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So this isn't one of those psalms where you have to wonder, where is he going with this? It's a song. It's a psalm. It's from the Old Testament songbook. David wrote it. And right in the very verse, he tells us what it's going to be about. In the Lord, I take refuge. So sometimes we read and you're thinking, where are they going with this? And then in the middle of it, you find out, or at the end, you find out. So right up front, he cuts to the chase. In the Lord, I take refuge. That's what it's about. Taking refuge in the Lord. So David is saying, you know, I have a place that I go. When it seems like the world's falling apart, when everything is shaken, where I go is to the Lord. So all the confusion, all the threats, all the danger, real, present, all of the stuff that's out there that's really happening, I take it to God. My pain, I take that to God. That's where he ends up. That's his place of refuge. So we want to be thinking to ourselves this morning, where do I go? Well, it seems like my, my life is just, everything I knew is just falling apart. Where do I take my pain, my confusion, my dizziness, my discouragement, my lack of hope? Where do I take my restless, hurting soul to a place where it actually can be? nourished, comforted, and safe. Why does David even write a song about taking refuge in God? 
Well, it's based on the fact that not everybody does that. As a matter of fact, some of David's friends, perhaps even his counselors as a king, those that have spoken to him with great wisdom through the years, his friends aren't seeing things like David sees. That's why you notice in verse 1 after David says, In the Lord I take refuge, there's quotation marks. Because he says, how can you say to me, his friends are saying things to him, they're speaking to him, based on what they see. And what they're saying to him, in essence, is David, the world as we knew it, is falling apart. We are doomed. As a matter of fact, people have arrows strong. And they're pointed at us, and we're not going to know when it comes because they're in darkness. Our very lives are being threatened. Our society is being threatened. But what we need to do is we need to run. We need to get out of here to a place that's safe in the mountains. So let's gather all the leftover Y2K goods we still have in our basements or in our closets or under our beds. Get all these survival foods. Let's head for the mountains. Let's go to Helm's Deep where at least we can have our own little life and we'll, we'll be safe there because this place is no longer safe. And a lot of the scholars believe, and, and, and probably rightly so, that this, there literally during this time was an attack, potential threat on David's life, which is nothing new. I mean, David came into the ministry with a target on his back. Saul didn't like him. He was constantly trying to hunt him down. And then his own son Absalom was hunting him down. And I'm sure as a king, that just goes with the territory. Not everybody's happy with your reign and rule. And some people are plotting to take your life. <clears throat> so this is David's reality. So that's the point. Everything's falling apart. His friends say, verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You've got no place left to go. I mean, everywhere you look. <clears throat> That's the conclusion that they have come to. Now, the politics, you know, once maybe at one time there was some good, but not anymore. The rulership, you can't go to the elders. I don't know who to trust anymore. The whole education system is failing. The judge, the courtrooms are failing. People are corrupt and you never know where it's going to pop its head up. In other words, every all these institutions that used to offer stability to society and used to offer stability to my own heart, they are gone. They're corrupt. I don't know who to trust anymore. We can't trust anybody. We just need to leave. There's no hope. There's nothing left to, to feel safe. There's nothing left to stand on. Flee, David, like a bird. To your mountain. Flee. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like, ah, oh, man, everywhere I turn, I didn't expect this. Everywhere I turn, it's just, life is really out to get me. There's just like, I went to somebody for encouragement and I got confronted. I mean, what? What's going on here? Derek Kidner um, is a Bible scholar, he's written an excellent commentary on Proverbs, which I've used many times, but he also wrote a commentary on Psalms, and he says this. Really what's being said is the foundations of your life are falling apart. 
You live to be a king. You can't be a king. We live to be your counselors. We can't be your counselors. Therefore, what's the use of doing anything? What can the righteous do? There's nothing to do. What's the use? What's the, what's the use? So that's way where they have landed in the world that they live in. They want to escape. Life's foundations are falling apart. How do we know when the foundation that we have decided to build our lives on, and we all have made decisions to build our lives on something, right? You know that you are building your life. There are things that you have decided, I'm standing here or I'm nesting here because this is what's safe for me. This is where I feel comforted. How do you know if those foundations, right or wrong, are your foundations? How do you know? One of the best ways to know what you really have built your life upon is for those things to become threatened. When you see the things that are your safe place start to be threatened and disappear, and you go into maybe mini panics, like sometimes I have these little mini panics about how the world seems to be um, degrading so quickly and so wicked and nobody loves God anymore and what's happening to the church and things that are real. But as we feel threatened by certain things, that's how one of the best ways for us to find out what we have really or what we are really building our lives on because that's what we've depended on. That's what makes us feel safe makes our hearts and souls feel the most peaceful of, out of all the other options. These are the things. So I'm going to build my life on that. And when they begin to fall apart, we lose our sense of safety, our sense of stability. And if we're not careful, we can lose hope. And we can lose perspective and just come to the conclusion, I just got to get away. I just can't take it anymore. I just got, I just have to get away. It's often the troubles of life <clears throat> that reveal the true patterns of our hearts. But what makes us tick destroyed is destroyed while well, we don't want to tick anymore. When it fails, we fail. When it stops, we stop. Now, we could call it a bad mood. We have bad moods. We have good days. We have bad days. We could call it a sinking into a deep depression, all those things are real. But I think what the psalmist is teaching is that all the things that, how we interact with the world and how we respond to it has a spiritual root to it. So in verse 1, we have the topic. It's about taking refuge in the Lord. And then uh, verses 1 through 3, you'll have what I'll call the panic because David's friends, his counselors, they are in a panic. And then in verses 4 through 7, I'll call what's the proper perspective. I don't want to call it the remedy because it sounds too cold and you know, medicinal. This, this is a perspective. If we want to not look at the world like David's friends, but we want to actually have a God as our mountain, there's something that we actually can do. And that's what it is. It's a proper perspective. 
So after quoting his friends, David, we got to flee. Everything's falling apart. David speaks again. And it's interesting to me because David's view of life is nothing like his friends. They live in the same world. They live in the same speck of, of earth. So when they look out their window, they see the same thing, the same people. They read the same headlines. They hear the same news. They have totally different responses. His friends are ready to give up. David has something to say to his friends and to other saints, of course. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. That's David's answer to their troubles, to their perspective. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. He tests the righteous. He hates the wicked. And the ones that love violence, may he rain coals upon them. But he's a righteous God. And he loves righteous things. And the uphold, the upright in heart will seek his face. David's revealing how he takes refuge in God. So he's looking at the same thing. It reminded me a little bit as I um, was studying this. You know, we, we have, we come into this world with different, uh, different personalities, you know, different character strengths and weaknesses and so forth. We, we have different propensities and likes and so forth. And so if I, um, there was a time in the past when Lisa and I were in the house and we were looking out a window of the house. And I can't remember, I can't remember exactly what she said because that was in her head. I can only remember what I said. But she said something to the effect, we were just kind of looking out and she was just like, you know, so beautiful. The grass is so green and the trees, the buds are coming out on the trees. She's telling me what she's seeing as she looks out the window. And I can't remember if she said, what do you see? Or I just offered. Knowing me, I probably just offered. I'll tell you what I see. Grass needs to be cut. That tree, I need to cut it down. The limbs are all dead in the tree. I got a pile of trash over there. I still got to haul it to the dump. Now, we're looking out the exact same window, seeing the exact same thing. She comes away with this. And I come away with this. Work. Got work. Now, it's true, you know, those things, everything that she said and everything that I said was true. And, you know, I'm the one that does cut the grass and the trees. And so that's my responsibility. But anyway, that's we're looking at the same thing and we're drawing different conclusions. And that's what's happening with David. And that's what's happening with his friends. And that's what's happening with us today. As we look out the window of our world, we're drawing conclusions. And we can be like David's friends. Or we can hear God through David. You know, when your world's falling apart, David's saying, here's what I do. Our God reigns. And when you think everything down here is slipping and it's falling and it's shaking, God's still on his throne. And God is in charge. And we have, for lack of better words, minions here 
You have minions. God raises and lowers. He puts people in places. He gives people responsibilities and powers. But he is in charge. He hasn't been shaken off his throne. He hasn't moved an inch. He rules the world. He rules the known world. He rules the part of the world that we don't even know. I talk about feeling a little insecure and shaken. What about all the news headlines about what we're learning about space? And people talking about, we're going to set up a civilization, some colonies out in space somewhere. That's creepy. I like my feet on something I can plow and plant in, you know. But if whatever's out there, God created it. And what is that, whatever's out there, he rules over it. So there's no need to panic over these new discoveries. That's David's perspective. What happens really is we reach points where we don't feel in control. And that's where it hits us the hardest. That's kind of like the root of things. Really what we're saying is I like to be in control. I like the world to operate a certain way so I feel a certain way and when that's happening, everything's good. But when that's not happening, I'm shaken. My foundations are shaken. Be kind of like saying, you know, the world be a better place if I could just rule it. Because then I could make everything go the way I want it to go, right? Makes perfect sense. But then what did I just do? I just put myself on the throne. You don't want me on the throne. Not with all that responsibility. David's saying God's on the throne. He knows exactly what he's doing. And things happen for a reason. So take refuge in this sovereign God that reigns and rules. You know, the truest courtroom is God's courtroom. And the truest and greatest authority is God's authority. God didn't let go of the steering wheel. He still cares. And as we were reminded in our song this morning, He still loves. Oh, how He loves us so. You know, Martin Luther, we're all aware of Martin Luther, um, who nailed his 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg. He He was, you know, kind of a strong character. I mean, God used him in that way. He's paving new ground for the church. He's like, we need reformation. We're in a... Wrong course here. And so he had to be pretty tough and strong. Um, you know, a mighty fortress is our God kind of guy. He wrote that. But he had an assistant, Philip Melanchthon. And he was more refined. He was actually more scholarly, intellectual. He was a better writer. He could pen things actually better than Luther. But Melanchthon would panic sometimes. And he would come to Luther and he'd say, everything that we work for, it's threatened. When he thinks about all the threats. Now, Luther talked about having threats on your life. He didn't have a lot of big fan club. And there were constant threats on the reformer's lives and and his life. And he would see the unstable circumstance. And he said, oh, the whole movement's gone. It's over. The foundations, everything we've worked so hard for, everything that we're doing, it's all being destroyed. And he panicked. And Luther would say to him, and I quote, let Philip cease to rule the world. Don't forget who actually is in charge, was his answer to him. See, there's, there are premises that are taking place that 
lead us to certain conclusions. God's the rightful master of the universe. We're not the rightful masters of the universe. And our our conclusions, if we panic, begin with the assumption that, well, God must be out of control because look what's happening. We make that assumption. We move that. Think, well, you know, things aren't happening the way they ought to happen. If I could just be in control. You know, is God in charge? What do we think about God? Is he more capable than I am? Is he smarter than I am? Is he able to probe deeper? Can he see the ends of things? According to scripture, God knows all. And it's his world and his plan and everything is happening according to the promises that he made before they ever even happened. So we need to keep that perspective. And that's David's challenge here. God is on his throne. So, yeah, things are happening down here and it's not a bowl of cherries. That's true. He's not denying that. He's just saying, look, God's in charge. Take your refuge in God, not these things. If there's no God, we have no right to complain anyway because nobody's in charge and things just happen. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. So why complain about it? Just have to wait for the next thing of luck or whatever. If God is who he says he is, then we can take refuge in this God. The second thing he says is there's things that are going on in this world and they may not be what you have concluded they are to be. David says, you know, God is testing the righteous. So he's saying to his friends, yeah, things are going on and it's hard and this is trouble. But you know what our God does? He tests. It's interesting in the way it's pitted in this um, psalm because he says he hates the wicked and you would think he'd say and he loves the righteous, but he doesn't. He hates the wicked and he says he examines the righteous. Isn't that interesting? Wait a minute. Who wants to be examined? Tests. Who wants to take a test? Especially one that's coming from God. You know, I don't really like tests. You like tests? I mean, if you're like a straight A student, you probably like bring it on. But if you're me, you're like, what well, can I can I call in sick? I got to get out of this thing. God gives tests. The tests can be a bear, right? And sometimes they're bad tests. They don't even they're just kind of worthless tests. But God's tests are perfect. And, and God tests his children. And the idea is that this is a really loving, caring thing for God to do. He hates the wicked, but he cares for his children. And the way he cares for his children is by testing them and in examining them. Now, tests can be hard and you've got to study for them and so forth. But we need tests because a test shows us what we really know and what we don't know. And we're not always sure about that. There's nothing like a test. It'll point out, well, here are your strong points. Here's the areas you really need to work on. God loves us enough to, to use the rotation of the universe and the current events. He uses all of these things in all of his children's lives to examine us, to help us, to edify us, and of course, to grow us in Christ. That's our purpose, to conform to the image of Christ. And so you better believe that's what God is doing every day in the lives of his children. 
Have you ever looked at life or the headlines or current events in this light? From this biblical perspective? That God is testing the hearts of men. He's examining my own heart. How am I responding to what's happening in my life? Is it in a way that brings Him glory? Because that's why He made me. Is to bring Himself glory. Am I doing that? Our covenant God is shepherding us. Showing us where we need to grow. And of course, when we grow in godliness, our hearts are more satisfied. He knows that too. Instead of empty. So his tests are perfect. Timothy Keller suggests there's a lot, you know, God does test and there's different, excuse me, tests in the Bible. But he suggests um, that there are two kinds of tests in Scripture. Two kinds of tests, basically. He defines it um, as one test is the Jonah test. And one test is like the Job test. Now, you know about Jonah. Uh, Corky brought us through the book of Jonah, so it's still fresh in our minds. Book of Jonah. You know about Jonah's life. Jonah didn't have it easy, right? I mean, he runs from God. And God sends danger. He sends disaster into Jonah's life. He gets on a ship. Uh, he gets thrown overboard. The sea swallows him and then a big fish swallows him. And life's not so good for Jonah as he is in the sea. But eventually the whale or the big fish spits him on to dry land. What was all of that misery and all the words that we read in his book? What's going on? Well, God was examining Jonah to show him, you've got some character fall. You've got a sin in your life because I've called you to be a preacher. And you've decided that the people that I'm asking you to go and proclaim my glories to aren't worth it. They're pagans. They're dangerous. They're idolaters. They have all these sickening practices. They eat unclean food. And so you're not even going to go and share that. You would just assume they perish. That's a bad issue in your heart. There's some racism there. There's some prejudice in there. You've got to deal with it. So that's like the Jonah test. And... Let's be honest. When we have things that are hard in our lives, what's one of the first things that come to our mind? Lord, is there a sin in my life? That's a good, healthy thing to ask, right? Is there a particular, especially is there a particular sin? Because, you know, God is a good enough shepherd to where he doesn't bombard us with so many things we can't do anything about it. He wants to care for us. It's just like him to take one or two, three top things so that we can actually make some progress. The Jonah test. So it'll take us by the nap of our neck and he'll sit us in front of the mirror and he'll say, look, I've been trying to tell you this through your friends, through your church, through your care group, through the books you've been reading, the verses you've been... I've been trying to show this to you. You haven't been listening, so I'm going to get your attention in this way. It got Jonah's attention. And he went and preached the message. The Jonah test. Then you have the Job test. You remember Job, the poor guy. God sent one disaster. Talk about the foundations and stability of life. I mean, his his children are killed. His barns and stuff burn. 
His livestock, this is a very well-established, wealthy man. His livestock is stolen. His reputation, he loses his reputation. He loses his health. Everything he gained in the world was gone. Just one bad news after another. One messenger after another. And it's interesting that this happens, and the whole first several chapters of the whole book of Job are Job and his friends, with the help of his friends, trying to figure out what sin is God after in your heart. Because here's how the world works. You sin, and God punishes you, and you need to repent of something. So his good, good friends are constantly saying, Job, you sinned in this way, you're too prideful, you sinned in this way. And Job's like, okay, I'm, I'm hearing you, let, let me think about this. And he thinks about, is this true? And then he would conclude, actually, no, that's not true. Job, you let all this go to your head. No, I didn't let my wealth go to my head. I'm a humble man. He's not claiming to be perfect, but he's saying, you're not going to pin that on me. Well, Job, and you know, I offered sacrifices. And just in case they weren't enough, I offered more sacrifices. I give to the poor. I worship God. And, and if it is a sin, God, I want to know. He's crying out to God, what is the big sin in my life that I need to repent of? So, well, we know what happened at the beginning of the book. Satan comes to God and he's like, if you consider, you know, have you considered my servant Job? He's like, well, in essence, yeah, of course, he's a good worshiper. Because look what you have given him. You've given him everything this world has to offer. You take that away. He will curse you. He's not going to worship you faithfully and loyally. Look, it's tied to something. In other words, really, you're serving him. He's not serving you. So they tried to treat it like a Jonah test, but it turned out to be a Job test. So here's what Timothy Keller says about that. Jonah was a test, and the learning objective for the test is to show you a particular sin. The Job test is what I'll call a foundation test. It's not about any one particular lesson. There's not a particular sin. It's God asking you to look at your very foundation, the very reason you live, that which is the most important to you in your life. The book begins with Satan coming to God and saying, you know what? Job does not serve you for nothing. He serves you for himself. Basically, he gets you to serve him. He doesn't serve you. His foundations are his children. His foundations are his status. His foundations are really the good things. He doesn't serve you just for who you are. You're not his foundation. These are his foundation. Take those things away. You'll see God. He goes on to say, sometimes God is saying... I'm not after one particular sin. I want you to see I am God and you are not. I want you to see I am worth having even if you have nothing else. I want you to see these things are not your salvation. I am your salvation. That's the reason why sometimes tests are not about one little lesson. They're about the whole foundation of life. And so we, we're forced to ask ourselves a question. What am, 
I standing on? What am I building my life on? What am I trusting in? What's under my feet? What's upholding my soul and my emotions and my mind? What's my purpose and my meaning? Why am I here? What am I striving after? And is it reliable or not? Is it God just because He's God? He's wonderful. He's beautiful. He's good all the time. Or have I slipped down into putting my faith in the things of this world? If you read Christian news, actually it made all the headlines. You'll know that I think it's probably maybe been a week or two now. Uh, Toby Mack is a big Christian artist, very successful. Um, I think it's Christian rap. And his son died. I think he was 21 years old. His 21-year-old son died. There's lots written. Everybody's curious. Well, and I still don't know. Was it was it suicide? Was it over? You know what? What did he die of? It's not been disclosed that I'm aware of. Not that I hang on those things. But in that reading about this, I read something very interesting. And it says he 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 shared his final exchange on his Instagram post about his son McKeon after he died. And he says this. Now this is just two about two weeks fresh. Okay, My wife and I would want the world to know this. And he has a worldwide platform. We don't follow God because we have some sort of under-the-table deal with Him. Like, we'll follow you if you bless us. We follow God because we love Him. We follow God because we love Him. He says he's the God of the hills and he's the God of the valleys. What window is he looking at life through? He just lost his son. He was just about to have a budding music career of his own, I'm told. We don't follow God because of the things he gives us, the things he, he takes away. He's God. He's God. He's glorious. He's beautiful. He's merciful. Every day I feel His mercy in my life. These things are shaken. He even says, I'm going to shake the foundation of the world. The things aren't going to last. I'm going to get rid of all of them in the end. So where's our faith and what are we building our life on? I follow God because He's God. What other reason do I need? And so Davis David, through this psalm, takes us to God to be our mountain. To God to be the place where our soul can say, Man, I'm shutting the doors on what's out there. And I'm going to look at it through the window of a sovereign God that reigns today and reigns forevermore. Now, we're going to praise God in song, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. And these guys, when they come up here, they're going to say, Christ, the body of Christ, broken for you. Christ was shaken. Christ was broken. Why? So that you have access to a kingdom that will never be shaken and never be broken.